Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Rhett. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Welcome to the new year. We made it. Today, Alex talks with Paul Galloway from the New York Museum of Modern Art. After running through his career, they talk about games as art, the rise of performative gaming, and they talk a bit at the end about the concept of authorial intent and the problem of creators creating art. This is a really good interview. Uh, very exciting. The entire thing went on not long enough, if I can say so. It was really thought-provoking and interesting to hear this conversation. I think everybody's going to enjoy this one. Mm -hmm. But first, we've got a bit of news to get into. So going back to Hades for a minute, the 2021 Hugo Awards for science fiction and fantasy were announced, and Hades won the first Best Game Award. This is big. This is good news. This is the right choice. Everybody made the right choice. <laughs> Hades is an amazing story, and it's one that actually keeps people who aren't into roguelikes, uh, more connected than coming back for more, which is a fantastic way to execute. And just the completeness of the story and the level of depth that they go into is very, very well deserved. They really brought to life and personalized all these different Greek gods that are, I, I think we've all heard in like just the mythicality of it all, but it's nice to actually have characters to put your face to them. And put a voice to them. Well done, Hades. Well done, Supergiant. You guys are doing good things. In other news, we have NVIDIA's announced the RTX 3050 graphics cards are going to be available for PC as well. It's going to be quite exciting to see everything else that comes with these. It's a more affordable 30 series graphics card. So if you're looking to upgrade, good luck on getting it for. MSRP, which is still a very affordable price range. I think it's about 350 or 450 for the 3050s. Uh, it's going to be a nice little medium step up from of not being able to get any crazy 30 graphics card. Mm -hmm. It's nice to see. The final little bit of news that we have for you right now. A uh, new exciting VR game coming to PSVR 2. We have Horizon Call of the Mountain, which has been announced. It is looking fantastic. And the just the display that they were able to show with the PSVR 2 looks incredible. And I couldn't imagine a cooler world to be immersed in with VR. I'm curious how they're going to turn the Horizon sort of gameplay style and and how they're going to match it to, to VR. Because... Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn and the upcoming sequel from, I think, February something something mm -hmm. were very much open world action-y games, and I'm curious to see what they do to sort of fit it to what you can do in VR. Hmm. It, it is going to be very interesting. I have a, I, I'm kind of hoping it may be more like explorative, like getting kind of a little bit hands-on with some of like the tech that you would find on the ground from a first-person perspective because there is so much going on and i've been playing horizon zero dawn recently and it's still an amazing game i'm 
enjoying the crap out of it. It's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot going on, and I think they would need to slow the action down a bit in order to make it fit for VR, just because there's so much to there would be so much to take in from a first person perspective. But it looks really cool. I think that's all the news we have for you this week. So we're going to be throwing it over to Alex and Paul Galloway. And we are here with Paul Galloway from the New York Museum of Modern Art. Thanks for being here, Paul. Uh, it's my pleasure, Alex. Always fun to talk to folks from the Maid. Uh, so why don't you tell us how you came to be at the MoMA? Sure. I have a background in art. I studied art and art history. I was an, a working artist myself for a number of years. What was your medium? I was a fine artist. I was a painter. And I would make uh, sometimes very photorealistic paintings, sometimes very abstract paintings, um, kind of dealing with the, the local cultures I was immersed in. So uh, when I was at grad school in Georgia, I worked with a lot of the fraternities and sororities there, kind of documenting their lives and doing these kind of voyeuristic participations uh, with that that culture, which I found fascinating and weird and disturbing. Um, And and yeah, so I I was lucky enough to have uh, a really great community. I'd gone to a uh, kind of artist residency in Maine called Skowhegan, and I made a lot of connections there with artists and uh, people in New York, which was my entry to New York. And then I came there and um, started uh, a job at the MoMA library, where I was a library page, um, which was one of the greatest jobs I've ever had because it involved me taking a book from a cart and putting it on its proper place on the shelf and then done. It was the best. There was a sense of accomplishment every day. I took the book from where it was not supposed to be and put it where it was supposed to be. And I felt very fulfilled by the end of every day. Yeah, it's a very discreet job. It's It was great. I love it. And I worked with amazing people um, there. And there's still many of those great people at the MoMA library. So from there, I moved over to a curatorial department in architecture and design, uh, which I joke was my weakest field in art history. Um, I was much more trained in fine art, painting history, and printmaking. Um, so... I took it as an opportunity to learn, and it's been an incredible learning experience working with uh, brilliant minds and historians, and uh, and it's been a growing experience ever since. I've been in architecture and design, oh God, 13 years now. So I would posit that your history as a, as a painter and uh, artist yourself would position you as almost a, a better to have a better eye for this stuff from the perspective of the MoMA, right? They're not looking at these things like the Cooper Hewitt looks at engineering things, right? Like this is a different purpose. I I mean, I don't know if it makes me better suited than anybody else. Everybody brings their own perspective uh, to things, but I, I come at it from the perspective of the maker. And so I feel like that always gives me um, a a kind of sympathy and a kind of um, desire to honor the work of the people actually creating these things and wanting to talk to them. And I have to say that's been the greatest pleasure of my career at MoMA has been being able to work with and get to know some of these designers. I mean, I'm the last few days I've been emailing back and forth with Alan Alcorn um, with some questions about his, some of his memories of the early 70s many of which are very fuzzy for him at this point. <laughs> Alan Alcorn, the creator of Pong, just for our listeners' sake. And it, it's it's ridiculous uh, that I get to just kind of get to know these people. And, um, and I think it's because their work is not as well known as it should be. And whether that's a video game designer or an architect or a designer, um, 
I think people like it when they are acknowledged, that their work is acknowledged as important and worthy of discussion and putting into a broader context of the humanities. Um, and I, I, that's always been my favorite part of the job. And it's if I were to rattle off the names of people I've gotten to work with and talk to, um, it's, it would sound like bragging. Uh, but you've been there for the period of time when video games have been displayed. Also, you know, in this designer, I mean, you spoke of Al Alcorn, obviously, that's like the first video game, really, Pong. Like, uh, But what sort of discussions have been had in your meetings with other curators and, at, at, you know, over what do we display? Why do we display it? How, how do we display it? That's a big one. Like, what are the discussions you've had? I mean, the, the discussions are really far reaching. It's everything from what is a game that's really interesting, that's doing something that people don't know enough about. And that can be a really common game like Pac-Man, which is such this universally known game. But you'd be amazed the vast majority of the public in this world don't know that Iwatani programmed different behaviors for each ghost. Each one has its own kind of personality and its own kind of parameters that it operates under which is fascinating, right? To have these adversaries on the screen behaving in different ways. That's an incredibly advanced thing for a video game to do at that time. And it's one of the reasons it was such a successful game. So we'll talk about minutia of like the coding of Pac-Man to uh, recently we've been looking at the kind of really bizarre kind of evolution of gaming culture in the last 10 years and the rise of streaming and Twitch and um, YouTube streamers. And that's really fascinating culture that's developed in there. So and in all cases, it's trying to kind of tie the worlds of video games back into the larger world of arts and the humanities. Um, because if you look at, say, the culture around opera or the culture around um, live theater, there's all kinds of subcultures and directions that it goes in. It's a really rich terrain that you can go in a zillion directions in. And I think the same holds true with video games. There's so many directions you can take this. There's so many histories. You can talk about classic games. You can talk about games in the 90s. You can talk about games right now. Um, and every single one is a rich field for mining topics to look at our culture in the current day. It's interesting you speak of it sort of almost as the museum is the guide through that culture for the attendees rather than it being, we want to show this because... X, Y, Z. It's, it's more of, it's more of surfacing things out of a vast ocean of possibilities, which I'm sure the MoMA has already done in say like, you know, uh, paintings and, and, uh, you know, installation art and sculpture already has to choose. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's one of the things that separates a museum like, uh, MoMA or SF MoMA from a, an encyclopedic museum. So like the Metropolitan Museum or the Smithsonian, they're charged with representing history, right? So we're, the broad arc of history and really being encyclopedic and sh giving you a history lesson of this and this and this and this in all places, um, as opposed to a place like uh, MoMA, which is more about kind of pulling out isolated moments in time and from that moment trying to kind of draw conclusions about a broader sort of scope of events and uh, creators that are happening in that specific time. So we are very much a, mu a much more limited kind of um, look at the world. And, and you could use the word, it's so overused, but you could say a curated look at the world as opposed to just the vast tomes of an encyclopedia. Encyclopedia, which don't get me wrong, I absolutely love encyclopedic museums. I can spend days and days in those places, but there is something a little uh, refreshing sometimes of having a smaller kind of 
guided tour through history to kind of call out specific moments. So one of the things that we had talked about uh, last time you came out here, and, and this is, I feel, a topic that all game video game displays in a museum setting have to deal with. How do you display the game? How many controllers get destroyed? <laughs> and like, how do people engage with a game like, say, The Sims, which is designed to be sat down and played with for hours in a you know, at most, like, how long do people spend with these games when they come through? And how many people do you get through in a day? I mean, it's before the pandemic, MoMA was getting between two and a half to three million visitors a year. And that's across the whole museum. So each gallery is, some are a little bit high, some are a little bit low. The rate of attrition for hardware is catastrophic. When we did our, our recent renovation and expansion, where we were closed for a while, I was part of the team that was looking at new furniture for the museum. And we had all kinds of desires for new couches that were more comfy and more comfortable lounge chairs. But in the end, it winds up, we started batting around the term prison grade. You need furniture that is what we call prison grade, which means it's indestructible because New York is hard and we're, our visitors are hard-wearing people and controllers, uh, all of those uh, kind of considerations come into effect because the last thing you want is somebody to show up in the gallery and half the things aren't working. You remember the experience of being in a video game arcade in the 80s and 90s, and there's always machines out, right? There's always going to be this or that one is broken. And that's money lost for the proprietor of the video game arcade. We're not losing money when things are gone, but we're losing an opportunity to engage people with the subject matter that we're trying to teach them. So that's a huge consideration that we make is how can we make something that's robust enough to handle extremely dense usage while also being something that's really, really engaging. You don't want to make some kind of iron box. And we also have our own kind of approach. We're sort of against using arcade cabinets. Um, we like a much more kind of minimalist aesthetic for our games um, so that people can really focus on just what they're seeing and kind of remove nostalgia a little bit from the kind of perspective. But it's, it's a huge challenge. And then you, you also brought up another one that's a really big challenge, which is time. Video games are a time-based medium. And the average amount of time people spend on an artwork in a museum is on the order of three to five seconds, right? Because you're just bang, bang, bang from thing to thing. Now, of course, time-based things require a little bit more of the viewer. But even then, you, when you're going through a museum that has thousands of objects on display, there's only so much attention you can count on from people. So... A game like Tetris or Pac-Man, you can pop into for just a few minutes and the viewer can have a rich experience of that. But something like The Sims or SimCity or EVE Online is far more demanding in terms of time. And I think, you know, there's the, the fantastic curator who was at the Victoria and Albert Museum, Marie Fulston, and I, uh, she did a great video game exhibition just a few years ago. Uh, she, she and I have had some really rich conversations and she's, I think, one of the great thinkers in this field. She writes about and thinks about video games as performance and argues that really the act of playing video games is a performance and which should be thought of in the same way that somebody performs an opera or somebody performs a modern dance piece and that that should be honored as well. And she likes the idea and I've batted around the idea at MoMA as well of like thinking of performing an artwork. So say, invite somebody to camp out in MoMA and play The Sims for weeks on end um, or get some hardcore um, Icelandic guy to camp out and just do EVE Online for 20 hours a day. That's a little bit impractical, but I think it's something that museums should be thinking about is these uh, this idea that a video game is not just something that we receive, but it's a 
it's a work of art that is performed, right? Which brings uh, the, the player very much into conversation with the creator. You could very much make the case that some of these people who do speed runs or tool assisted speed runs are playing a game like an instrument, you know, almost. It's, it's very much performance. It, it is. And I think that becomes this really fascinating thing that makes video games unique in the terms of cultural production is that there's so much given by the, the, the spectator. Um, the spectator is invited to be a part of the performance and part of the creation. And in many cases, what the spectator or the player does is actually far more interesting than what the designer has given them. Mm, and, and therein lies another aspect where, you know, this, the similarities between traditional art and games is, you know, is the meaning in the creator's hands or is the meaning in the people who have received the art's hands, right? Like, what does this painting mean? I mean, that's that's a very big question. And it's one that uh, calls in, this is one, a, a question I pose to my students very often, right? Where does the artist's rights stop and everybody, and the culture at large, right, begin? I am, uh, have gone on the record many times of saying that Star Wars does not belong to George Lucas. And yet George Lucas continues to f up Star Wars. You know, I actually recently <laughs> watched Star Wars on Disney Plus and there's a part um, in Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader finally grabs the Emperor and throws him down the tunnel and everything. Did you know now he says no? Oh, jeez, so come well, on. He sees his son getting zapped and now Darth Vader does the no. And it's the echo of the no from Revenge of the Sith, yeah. right? When the laugh the of the no, no from... Now, yeah. in, if you watch <laughs> Return of the Jedi on Disney+, Plus, Darth Vader sees his son getting zapped by the Emperor yells no and grabs the emperor and throws him down the tunnel and i just wanted to scream i i stomped out of my living room just thinking what it's like every year he's going to change something else to this you don't own this movie anymore this is owned and belongs to the culture um now that's a very debatable point right where do we respect the artist's intentions and where do we respect the the culture's uh rights and I think it's a really uh, tricky debate um, to be made um, because you want to respect the creator, but at the same time, at some point, you got to let him make him stop, <laughs> quit it, <laughs> quit messing with this. Yeah, or you know, or Dick George R. R. Martin, where you're sitting around waiting for it, right? Like it's beholden. I mean, maybe he will make a terrific next book, right? But the, the other thing, thing is, it's almost liberating to say that once the artist has completed the piece and given it to the public or presented it, that it's no longer theirs, because then we can do things like separating art and artist. Like, we can have Woody Allen exactly. movies back, right? right. Like, I, you know, I deeply love Woody Allen movies, but wow, holy right. crap, or does, like, what a problematic person, do, are right? We, are like, we forever talking about Minecraft in the context of Notch? Right. At what point is exactly. it no longer, exactly. can we just ignore Notch? Because Minecraft has become so many orders of magnitude more than what he actually created so many years ago. Um, or, or Woody Allen is a great example of that. Because the, the truth of the matter is, there's monsters in every field. And there's heads everywhere. And sometimes mm -hmm. heads make great things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, what do you what do with do that? Do? And my wife likes... My wife likes to say, if you don't like art made by assholes, let's go to the MoMA. You can't have that. You can't have that. You can't I mean, have it's, that. It's, every, it's in you music. Know? It's in theater. It's in uh, film. It's it's every creative field. Because creators are just like regular people, there's a certain percentage that are just f***s. And uh, some of them are horribly, horribly abusive, awful people 
who occasionally makes some really beautiful things, right? I'm not going to stop listening to Michael Jackson. I love Michael Jackson's music, right? That's it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And the separation of art and artist is, it's almost, uh, it's almost incumbent upon our society to continue to move forward if we want to be able to do anything. It's so weird. The argument's been made almost weird that an ancient argument like that could, anyway, what are you up to these days? Uh, we are working on many projects at the museum. We um, are still grappling with the effects of the pandemic, as all uh, art museums are. Um, we went from, as I said, averaging over two and a half million people to, I think in 2021, we uh, got somewhere around 400,000 people, which actually feels pretty good considering um, the closed borders and the realities of the pandemic and reduced admissions. Um, but that also means a kind of complete rethinking of how the, an art museum builds its programs and who are we building our programs for? Um, what are the audiences we're trying to reach? Um, what were the things we were not doing very well before? Um, so there's a big rethinking and it's not just MoMA, it's all art museums. SF MoMA is doing this, Art Institute of Chicago, the Met, Smithsonian. I mean, everybody has to kind of rethink how they were working and who they were honestly serving. Um, so I think there's a lot of that kind of soul searching going on and retrenching, which I think in many ways is leading to some, some good conclusions. We are, I think, going to come out of this a much more sustainable museum in terms of our carbon footprint. We're going to come out of this a much more open museum and thinking about our audience and in particular, our local audience, New York city, which is a majority, uh, people of color city. And we were not serving that population well at all. And I think there's a, a renewed kind of investment in making sure we're engaging those communities. And I think um, there's a lot of dialogues increasingly with smaller institutions, places that um, were doing good jobs at certain aspects of this or the other. And it's one of the things that I always really inspired me. And I, I came back um, from our time in Oakland just singing the praises of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment in Oakland. I was like, these guys are doing it, man. They are like in the community, engaging the community and on like boots on the ground, all the cliches of like really engaging with their, their surrounding community. And this is what we should be doing. We've got so many resources to bring to bear in this effect. And I think there there's similar kind of energy happening in other like small arts nonprofits throughout the world in Europe and the United States, because, you know, the, the, the kind of race to the top of art museums was really becoming unsustainable. It was almost like a reflection of the culture at large of these giant institutions and companies like Amazon and Google dominating in this the, the Louvre, Dubai, right, the Louvre, Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi, this and that. And it's not just us in architecture and design, it's our colleagues in painting and sculpture also trying to find how can we be more local? How can we better serve the actual population that we purport to serve rather than just international tourists? Um, so I think it's it's been a really interesting process to be uh, a part of in the last year, this real rethinking of um, who we serve and what kind of art we should be elevating. I mean, I would encourage anybody who lives in New York to get a membership to the MoMA. I can't tell you how much I love my SF MoMA membership. I mean, what I would do in the New York MoMA is the same thing I do at the SF MoMA. I would meet people there. I'd take my extra ticket and be like, meet me there. We're going to go and get coffee. We're going to see things for 20 minutes and we're going to leave. You know, it's like it's just there every day as as a public space. Yeah. space. And you're blessed with SF MoMA is an incredible institution. They're actually mounting an exhibition that's coming up uh, in this winter that you guys have to see. It's Nary Oxman. We did a small version of this show 
um, just a few, uh, actually earlier this year, and now it's going to be a bigger version, an SF MoMA. Uh, it's an incredible, she's an amazing designer, a really incredible thinker. Uh, so that'll be coming up. So make sure you catch that in San Francisco. Excellent. Terrific. I'm definitely going to go. I hope all of our readers who are out here attend it. And I hope all of our readers on the East Coast go and visit you uh, with the, uh, I hate to say it's beneficial right now with the, the lower admission, but like you could really spend some quality time. It's there. Uh, especially uh, earlier this year when we were averaging around 100 visitors an hour, I was telling people like, this is your moment to like, come. Um, I mean, it's maybe, uh, you know, the, the holidays are always a little bit busier in New York, but still it's, even December, which is always our highest point, this is nowhere near what it was like. Um, and this is true for all museums. Go to the Met, go to the Smithsonian, go. To, go. It's like you're never going to see them this empty again. Good advice. Thank you for being here, Paul, and thank you for all the work that you do. My pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Galloway. That was a fantastic interview. Hopefully we will be able to have you back and any more interesting developments in the art world and the gaming world come to fruition within this next year. Maybe we can get you back to talk about your, talk about some hot takes and more interesting stories about your experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. But for now, I think it's about time we start wrapping this up. So what have y'all been playing? Well, my friends and I uh, got each other a game called Gloomhaven and it's a, tabletop board game that has been turned into a digital game so we can play it online and it's very complicated it's very difficult it's kind of dungeons and dragons-y um it's it's very hard to describe it's basically a card game and a board game where you play sort of this mercenary who has this deck of cards that you draw actions from and use in various ways to to fight enemies and things I got to say, it is hard. We're playing on the easiest difficulty, and we've already failed like the first mission three times. Wow. Like, it is a hard game. So, oh, man. I can say it's a lot of fun. I liked the voice acting. I like the art. I like sort of the gameplay style of everything. But don't expect it to hold your hand. There's basically no tutorial, and you're just going to get what you get. Like, there's a lot of dice rolling, there's a lot of RNG. It's a fun game, but it is tough as nails. That's pretty exciting, though. I think that's going to be. That looks really, really cool. I, I always like uh, kind of like the integration with card games, like action games, kind of like reinventing like the like debt creation. Uh, it's I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to play more board games as well. I've been more on the adventure kick, but I also just got my roommates uh, the expansion for Lords of Waterdeep. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna get a game night together and start getting that around. Just a really fun kind of like RPG style board game where it's still dice rolling and and resource collecting and building up missions mm -hmm. and having like secret intents. It's a really fun one. But as far as video games go, still playing Horizon Zero Dawn, but also picked up Monster Hunter Rise, which I'm fully enjoying. I think they did everything right. I mean, releasing it on Switch too was a fantastic. Uh, I think just having that be kind of exclusive, it runs fantastically and being able to still put it down and play with a pro controller on your TV and then like picking it up and then bringing it with you to go really, really helps it out. It's a very fun Monster Hunter game that I highly recommend everybody check, check it out. 
the switch axe is a very very fun weapon i'm very glad to get back into it after a hiatus from playing monster hunter world highly recommend it all right cool i picked up metal slug on the playstation store which one uh the first one yeah i don't know i just had this itch <laughs> to sort of play that um it's really cool uh side scrolling kind of shoot 'em up it's just really easy to get into uh uh, coming from the Neo Geo uh, SNK uh, company. Yeah, I just wanted something kind of mindless and, and easy to get into. And that was kind of like the perfect. It is. It's a mm-hmm. perfect entry. It's also just a blast to play. That like kind of style of like arcade games. I remember playing, I think it was like Metal Slug 4 with friends of mine in my small town pizza shop. And like they had it there. We, got, we each got like 20 bucks and quarters and ended up beating it. It was that was one of the like few and only game like arcade games that I've ever stayed and beaten at the cabinet, and it was worth every quarter. Wow, <laughs> it, it was it's fantastic. It's super fun, and the ease of getting into it is really really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely very fun. Uh, probably my favorite part of playing the whole game is where the game sort of like freezes. Mm-hmm. because there's so much going on on screens like even with a playstation 4 you're still going to get those frame drops <laughs> oh yeah i mean that's part of the experience if you get like everything <laughs> on the screen everything just slows down and goes slow-mo starting bullet timing mm-hmm. <sighs> well i think that's all the time we have for the rest of the day thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment's official podcast if you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Peter Mazar and Dropsy. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time. I'm Miles. I'm Red. I'm Anthony. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.